Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good morning and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. It has been quite the weekend and we've got Arthur Snell, diplomat and former head of the UK Prevent Programme here to help us to try and make sense of it and the week that is coming. Arthur, how are you? How, how was your weekend? Well, it's uh, I think probably like almost everybody in the world, except for the uh, 79 million or uh, 69 million who voted for Trump, I had a fantastic weekend. It reached <laughs> the sort of peak late on Saturday night. So yeah, it's been good. Where were you, and what were you doing when the uh, when the result came through? I have to confess, I didn't have the television on. I was listening to pop music and reading comics. <laughs> I think I had actually yes, I had checked out, out of CNN. You know, I'd seen enough of uh, Julia Chatterley and, yes. and uh, <laughs> coming up every three minutes advertising her show. And uh, and what's the future of mice, Richard Quest? Yes. What's the future for mice? But I, I, I had checked out, but I, I, I guess, you know, my Twitter habit meant that I probably only missed it by about, you know, 45 seconds and, mm. uh, and then raced to switch on CNN. And, and there it was. And, and that was that very mo- moving moment with CNN commentator Van Jones. Uh, and you could just see the emotion and, and, you know, the trauma that not everybody, of course, but a lot of people in America have been going through in the past years. What was your favourite bit? Uh, Joe Biden's extremely statesman-like speech, which seemed to portend a new era in American politics, or Rudy Giuliani in an industrial estate next to a crematorium and a sex shop? Well, I think it has to be Rudy's press conference. And and if any of the listeners haven't caught up with this, this is one of the most gloriously comedic episodes in recent American history. Uh, The Trump campaign announced that they were going to hold a press conference for their lawyers at the Four Seasons, which, as everyone will know, is a grand hotel. But due to some kind of mix-up, it was actually held at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, which is a small and no doubt an entirely uh, creditable landscaping business in a shabby area of North Philadelphia, which, as Andrew has pointed out, is opposite a sex shop and a crematorium. And it is just one of the funniest and bizarrest moments in the entire history of Trump world, that it it began with Trump coming down his gold escalator in his absurd skyscraper in New York and ended in a crummy car park opposite a sex shop in Philadelphia. My favourite explanation of this was that somebody got Siri out and said, Siri, call the Four Seasons Hotel Pennsylvania. And Siri dialed Four Seasons Total Pennsylvania total landscaping and then that you know i would love to have been a fly on the wall but anyway it's supposed to be start your week not gloat your week much of this week is going to be dictated by whether trump is going to concede or not and what happens if he doesn't and highly amusing though it is to imagine him fuming on his golf courses this is a dangerous moment right this is you know what are the consequences of dragging this out do you think there are practical consequences which is that uh, President-elect Biden, as we have to call him, cannot start any serious work on transition. And that means, for example, sending members of his team into the different departments of the American government, 
starting to get offices going, people getting email addresses that are proper government secure so they can receive government materials. None of that work can begin until President Trump concedes and and a and the, the wheels of transition start to turn in the US. So that, that's a practical issue. And then, of course, there's possibly much more significant, a constitutional issue, which is that for as long as Trump refuses to accept what is blindingly obvious, and let's not forget that you know he, he may, by some fluke, scrape over the line in Georgia under the recount, although no one thinks that's likely, but the votes in Pennsylvania now have Biden up by, I think, for nearly 40,000. So there's no way Trump can win Pennsylvania, and therefore he has no pathway to be president. So as long as Trump carries on with this, it undermines the faith in the system. There are lots of people who, when they hear Trump, they, they think he's telling them the truth. They, they believe what he's saying about electoral fraud, as baseless as it might be. And so you're just continually undermining confidence in the institutions of American democracy, which is, of course, what Trump has been doing ever since he was elected. I mean, for a lot of people, uh, this is the this is the next phase of Trumpism, though, isn't it? The, the, the contaminating democracy is the goal. Perpetuating a stab in the back myth is the goal. Developing it into a future post-presidential role for Trump uh, is the purpose, and that can't happen without a contaminated democracy. The, the Lincoln Project podcast, which I've been listening to quite a lot, has described how the guy, the TV executive who basically built Trump's persona through The Apprentice, now has another project uh, on the table, and it is Trump is still president. They'll fly him around on a, on a private jet and pretend he's still president. So do you think that this idea that, that Trump can effectively, you know, create himself as, you know, the king over the water will have traction? Well, I certainly think he's, you know, he's the most famous person in the world and he's not going to stop being the most famous person just because he isn't president, not, not immediately. And yeah, you will have this sort of Trump TV concept, whether it's, it's a whole channel to himself or, or just a show, maybe the Fox will give him a perch uh, or some other channel. You know, he will, wherever he chooses to, to land, he's going to have a huge amount of attention. And ultimately, whilst it was a clear victory for President Biden, it wasn't an overwhelming victory. And therefore, there are many, many, many millions of America Americans who, for whatever reason, have decided that Trump speaks for them. So, you know, this thing isn't going away. But I think what we have to remember is that there are loads of other Republicans who, whilst they've never stood up to Trump while he was president, they would quite like to be president, right? So they don't want to just let Trump carry on, dominate the party, control the party, control who the next presidential candidate or even you know, put himself forward again. I mean, I don't think that's likely, but you hear some people whisper about it. So I, I, I think, yeah, Trump is still going to be this huge figure. And certainly Trumpism continues. Trumpism, the politics of resentment, racial tinge, the sort of authoritarianism, the lies, the dishonesty, the, the, the favours for your billionaire mates, all that stuff, that hasn't gone away. The real question is, is who are the other big figures in the right-wing movement in America who see themselves coming forward and trying to take the lead? Well, we've seen George W. Bush has congratulated uh, Biden, uh, but re relatively few Republicans splitting off and, and accepting what's happened. Mitch McConnell hasn't accepted the victory. Mitch McConnell hasn't accepted the victory or Trump's claims that it's, uh, it's fraudulent. And according to the New York Times, only a few well-known Republicans like Senators Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska have congratulated Mr. Biden. So, I mean, how, how long can this drag on? It does, does there come a point where people just start to fall away out of fatigue and accepting the inevitable. 
Well, it, it's very disappointing, isn't it? But I think most of what is now the mainstream of the Republican Party probably aren't going to say anything until various legal avenues have, have you know, have failed. And, and you know, all the indications are, I think it's like a 12 nil at the moment, you know, Trump hasn't won a single of his legal challenges. So there's no, none of these have any serious possibility of getting anywhere. But it seems that rather than do the obvious thing, which is to say, look, you know, none of this has any merit. It's clear who's won the election. Let's move on. The Republicans who've been spineless around Trump right from the beginning are going to continue to be spineless. And, and no doubt when it is over, you will have people like Mitch McConnell saying, well, you know, we didn't agree with Trump on this and this and this. And you think, well, you know, <laughs> you didn't tell us at the time, did you? Mm. I mentioned uh, George W. Bush congratulating Biden on his victory. What about congratulations from elsewhere? It took Boris Johnson some hours to grudgingly congratulate Biden. You're a diplomat. What, what does that mean for the UK? The UK's sort of congratulation, it, it was a fairly sort of standard form. There was a very odd thing from Dominic Raab, which I don't really understand, where he, he sort of tried to say on the one hand this, you know, on the one hand, the processes are still working out and Donald Trump did a jolly good campaign. On the other hand, congratulations, which is odd because the the tradition in these things is you don't, you, you're not making a comment. You could be very favorable towards President Trump, but you're just observing the fact that someone won an election. So that's a normal thing. But I think, you know, there's a wider point here, which is that it's very clear within the Biden camp, they have a pretty low opinion of Boris Johnson. They see him as Britain Trump, which is, of course, the description that President Trump himself used. Uh, they remember the racist attack on Barack Obama during the Brexit campaign, and that has been quoted at least twice in recent days by very close members of Biden's team on Twitter. So this is not something that's been forgotten about. So I think you know Britain does have an issue there. There was an especially tasty tidbit over the weekend when Obama's former press aide, Tommy Vita, described Johnson as a shape-shifting creep. And immediately people said, that's going to stick, shape-shifting creep. Does personal animosity or just you know personal inability to get on actually matter in scenarios like this? I mean, there was another great one. The Sunday Times had, if you think Joe hates him, you should hear Kamala. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think ultimately, clearly, you know, particularly in the personality of Joe Biden, who by all accounts is a very sort of magnanimous and warm personality, the fact that he probably thinks Boris Johnson is a bit of an idiot probably isn't very important, actually. But I think it matters in two ways. One is that the Conservative Party in this country likes to think that it has a sort of automatic entree into the halls of Washington, D.C. They're, they're all sort of instinctive Atlanticists. I mean, let's not forget that Boris Johnson was born in America and was an American citizen in, until he gave it up to avoid his taxes. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, so that, the, I think it has an effect at a sort of cultural level. And I think it also has an effect because actually the media in this country get quite obsessive about the quality of the relationship between our prime minister and the U.S. president. And it's very clear that Johnson and Biden are going to struggle to have the kind of warm, close, cooperative relationship that some previous occupants of those uh, respective offices have managed. How important is this? Is this congratulations thing? Is there an etiquette to it? Is there a, a sort of an, an international uh, kind of dance card by which you have to do it by a particular time? I wouldn't say that, but certainly it's interesting to note the ones that that leave it a long time. So. Um, 
It took Saudi Arabia until late last night. Now, Saudi Arabia, in a very odd way, really, have become strangely close to the Trump administration. You know, let's not forget that Trump's first foreign visit was to Saudi Arabia. Who, who would have thought that that was um, sort of in line with the interests of the the struggling workers of the Rust Belt. That but everything's oh. gold there. There's a lot of gold on stuff. They like they gold toilets and things. That's what he likes. Yes, of course. He, yes, he probably admires their, their taste for interior furnishings. And as far as I'm aware, I think there's still a, slight, a few slightly predictable uh, players on the international scene who can't find it in themselves to welcome President Biden. So that includes Erdogan in Turkey, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Poland, where you've got the sort of populists in power. So... I mean, ultimately, it's not for me to advise those countries, but I think you look pretty stupid if you sit on your hands. It's obvious who's won this election. You you know, there's nothing to be gained. I mean, it comes back to the question of Dominic Raab. What does Dominic Raab think he gains by being slightly equivocal? Because it's it, it, there's no way that Trump has won this, and no Republican is going to, in in five years hence, say, well, you know, you, you were too too keen to... To welcome the new president, you say no. That's standard behaviour after an election. It's just a normal thing. It's interesting the degree to which uh, Farage and the kind of far right outriders have been hyping this idea that Biden actually hates Britain. He he hates Britain. He's uh, his his sympathies are Irish Republican, and that means he must hate Britain. And I just wonder if that's going to be kind of built into a component of a future sort of the the, the martyr idea that tends to drive right wing politics. You know, we, we've uh, we were set for this wonderful future, but then this awful president who hates Britain uh, materialised out of nowhere. Well, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because let's not forget that you know, on the right, there's a lot of people who, all the way back to the Good Friday Agreement, have been opposed to the settlement that exists in Northern Ireland. And of course, one of those people is Michael Gove. He was opposed to the Good Friday Agreement. So you've got people for whom that what was the established platform of relationships and and arrangements in Northern Ireland are not satisfactory. Now, of course, the Good Friday Agreement was was firmly uh, and extensively supported by the US government at the time. Uh, Obviously, it was Clinton in those days. So this you you take this forward, you've got this sort of lingering resentment that there's a possibility that, you know, the unionist position didn't get everything it could have got back in that day. And you bring that forward and, and then you, you sort of introduce into the, this idea, yes, that President Biden, he hates Britain because he's Irish-American. And I mean, there, there was I read so that none of you have to, a long article in the Daily Mail by uh, Douglas Murray sort of following this idea that, you know, this, this person has a visceral hatred and it's all down to his, his, his love of Irish republicanism. The days when there are serious politicians in America who support Irish republicanism, as in, you know, militant Irish republicanism, are long gone. So, I mean, I think it's a slightly nonsensical argument. However, you know, things would be a lot easier if we weren't trying to leave the EU in a way that creates an almost insoluble problem on the Irish border. And to some extent, if you have Irish roots, you're entitled to feel miffed about that. Be nice to talk about Joe Biden himself and his policies a little for a while, wouldn't it? In the in the upcoming week, there was an audible sigh from uh, Europe in particular, but the world in general, when the Biden victory was announced. How much of a reset with world relations do you think we'll see, and how quickly? He's he's already talked about a global summit for democracy uh, to sort of set up a front against the authoritarians in China and so on. Yeah, well, I think, and I mean, of course, the interesting thing is that. It, 
it's foreign policy where he can do the most because whatever happens with the outstanding Senate races, remember there's two in Georgia, they haven't finished the count in Alaska, you know, he is in charge of foreign policy. That's something a president gets to be. So he said he's going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. That's hugely important and also hugely important in the signal that it sends because, of course, it's not just about the Paris Accords. So can you go further? Maybe maybe he will make a commitment to... Um, to net zero for the US, you know, in a certain time frame. That would be amazing. So there's that, there's the idea that America is a country that supports democracy, which has been completely abandoned by the Trump administration. But for years, you know, that that was a, a core element of American foreign policy. However much someone might say, well, what about what they did in Central America? Yes, there are exceptions, but it has been a core element of US foreign policy. Um, and then, yes, the big questions, the big sort of geostrategic issues, Russia, China, how how those things are navigated i i think we will see a change because that is the area where he can he's got greatest freedom of movement and he can demonstrate who he is without having to get sort of grubby battles in on on capitol hill how worried do you think european leaders will be i mean you mentioned earlier you know, Trumpism has not disappeared there remains that huge strain in the republican party and it's entirely possible that biden could be a one-term president the guy's not young do you no. think that do you think there'll be an element of caution well, I I think possibly the country that people will want to make as much progress and sort of bake things in as they can in, in case they're confronted with a much more difficult environment at some point in the future. I mean, one of the other areas, I mean, you've got NATO. I mean, Trump obviously hates NATO because he's never quite understood it. And he thinks he's paying money into an account that Germany is drawing money out of. And he doesn't understand that it's simply people invest in their militaries at different levels. And, and obviously, the Americans have, have put a lot more funding into their military. But, you know, NATO will get a big boost under President Biden, one, because it's a contrast with Trump, two, because it's a way of, of standing up to Russia and aggression in all parts of Europe. And so things like that, I, I imagine you'll find that a lot of European countries will try and sort of institutionalize some of these changes. So it's harder for a new US president to tear them down if, if such a thing happens in 2024. What do you think Vladimir Putin's thinking after this weekend? Well, it's interesting. One of the things that that's, there are reports that Vladimir Putin is unwell. Now, he mm. certainly seems to have been a little bit sort of lower level of activity and visibility. And, you know, there have been reports that with the whole COVID situation that he's, you know, he himself is quite nervous about catching it. So he's sort of put himself into deep isolation. So one wonders, you know, did Putin end up thinking that Trump hadn't been as good for him as he'd hoped? I mean, the US still had sanctions uh, on Russia, partly because Trump's, uh, you know, connections to Russia were exposed, and that changed the whole political environment. It was definitely a plan of the Trump administration right at the beginning to, to reduce those sanctions. So I wonder whether Putin is probably, he's not, I'm sure he's not at all happy about a Biden presidency, but perhaps he also accepts that it's slightly inevitable. Let's move on to a handful of small things before we, uh, we move on. Uh, in the UK, peers are probably going to strike down the law-breaking powers in the Internal Market Bill. And this is taking place against the background of an Irish-American president, as we just discussed. Number 10 is indicated that they're plowing on. Do you think that uh, Biden's uh, ascension has rather knocked a hole in the idea of the internal market bill and the notion that Britain can break international law willy-nilly? Well, it, the, it's going through the House of Lords. And so today, I think this evening, 
all the uh, all the indications are that, that the peers will strike it out. And that's quite unusual to take a sort of block of text out of a bill and just get rid of it. Uh, the House of Lords doesn't normally take such a sort of firm stance. So that shows very clearly that breaking international law is not something the House of Lords believes in. Now, originally, you would have expected that it bounces back to the Commons, uh, the Tories shove it back in, they carry on with their intention to break international law, and, and on it goes. But two things are, are going to happen in this time frame. So one is that you do now have President-elect Biden, who has on the record clarified that he, he regards this specific intention is completely unacceptable. The second thing is that in that time frame that the bill proceeds back through the Commons, there will have to be a deal with the EU or we're just going to no deal anyway. So it seems to me that the government has kind of been saved by the House of Lords here because they will be able to not have to uh, enact this law-breaking power that will save them their first big sort of dispute with the new uh, Biden administration, and it will come down to whatever the the terms are in the in the new EU deal. And there are two big committee meetings on Thursday. Committee meetings always utterly thrilling. Dido Harding is up for probable crucifixion in health and social care, and the workings of the Prime Minister's office are up before public administration and constitutional affairs. These two things are both open source of government at the moment, particularly after. The reports at the weekend that the chair of Boris Johnson's vaccine task force, Kate Bingham, has spent £670,000 for her own team of boutique PR consultants. We do look a lot like we've got a bureaucracy trough going on here and a total mess of competence. Do you think that we could start to see the needle moving a little bit this week? People, you know, public disgust with this behaviour is pretty high. I'd love to hope so, but there seems to be an inability to understand the way the public feels about these things. And I wonder if that's because so much is run by a tiny, tiny group of people right at the centre who almost take pleasure in sort of annoying uh, the people who disagree with them. And so, yeah, you, I think someone like Dido Harding you know, they, they might shift her sideways because she's so manifestly not succeeding in her very, very important task. But some of these other things, uh, you know, this thing with Kate Bingham, yes, she, you know, she's she's the chair of this vaccines task force, not obviously qualified to be so. She's billing crazy money just for public relations consultants. So who knew that a vaccines task force needed that? And she was also giving... <laughs> A, a briefing which which was available to anybody who would pay $200, which included sensitive government information about the vaccine task force. So, I mean, this sort of stuff, it, it, it portrays a, a class of people who think that the rules and the, the, the norms of behaviour are for the little people. And I think if you look at Johnson and the way he's led his life, I think that is probably what he thinks. And therefore, the people he likes to have around him probably behave in that way. Finally, before we wrap up, there is the small matter of a new civil war in Ethiopia, Arthur. What's happening here? This is very much your uh, wheelhouse. Yeah, so uh, this is something a very, very disturbing and, and, and potentially very serious situation, which has sort of unfolded rapidly in the last week. Now, Ethiopia, for those who are not familiar, as a country, it's a bit like the former Yugoslavia. It's made up of quite distinct uh, sort of ethnic-based states that together form Ethiopia. And I'm sure listeners will remember that Eritrea, which is now an independent country, was once part of Ethiopia and broke away after a lengthy civil war. In the last sort of 
20, uh, nearly 30 years, Ethiopia has has consistently been controlled by the Tigrayans, which is a one of the states that sort of is on the, the northern border of Ethiopia and Eritrea. And that group, that region comprises probably the most sort of militarily powerful, you know, units of, of, of sort of Ethiopia's army, but also local militias. Now, it's that group, which in 2018, they lost control of Addis Ababa. So they no longer controlled the whole country through political means. So this wasn't a, a, a war. But this loss of power seems to have escalated out of control. So the Ethiopian prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, who is not from that area, uh, he was trying to enforce greater control over Tigray. And this escalated into violent confrontation. So it's a very, very fragile situation. As I say, you know, Ethiopia is is not a very coherent country. It's made up of these different units. It's got a history of armed conflict. The the Tigrayan area, which is sort of going into revolt, is mili- militarily very well equipped. And I think it's something that is very worrying. And it's an example of the sorts of things that happen when you have an incompetent and corrupt American president who has no interest in America's wider global role and is far too busy worrying about whether or not he can rig an election. Do you think it's likely to have consequences for the outside world, or or, or, or is it going simply going to be one of those terrible tragedies that has unfolded and the world stands around holding its hands in the air? Well, I think you know there will be a lot of that at the beginning, and then uh, if it escalates out of control and we see other parts of the country, uh, you know escalating in into into their own uh, sort of rebellions and revolts then of course there'll be a call for the world to get involved this might prove to be president biden's first big foreign policy crisis and it's a good example of how it's not the ones you expect everyone was talking about russia and china but maybe he's going to have to be trying to find a peace deal for ethiopia Arthur, thank you for starting our week this Monday morning. We make no guarantees about how it will unfold, but we've given you a good set out of the issues that are coming up. Arthur, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for listening. We will see you soon. The main panel show is out tomorrow, Tuesday, and then there's dailies from Wednesday to Friday. If you want to support us, don't forget to search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Mugs, T-shirts, early editions of the podcast without adverts on them and more will all be yours. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.